To the fates, as I suppose, was owed the origin of this great city and the beginning of the mightiest empire that is second only to that of the gods. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We're back with another episode in the New Humanist series about the rise of the Roman Empire. No republic was ever greater. We're walking through the masterpiece from the founding of the city by ancient Roman historian Titus Livy and the great commentary on Livy, Renaissance philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli's discourses. Livy wrote of Rome, No republic was ever greater or holier or richer in good examples. In no city has greed and luxury seeped in so late, and no place has given so much honor to simplicity and frugality. In this series, we are investigating how this came to be. Well, hello, Jonathan. Welcome back. Excited for episode number two of No Republic Was Ever Greater. What do you think of Livy so far? So far, really great. He is definitely enthusiastic about Rome and its origins, as we can uh, see from the different quotes we've read. And I think that's that's something that is really important, I think, for a historian to actually love or have some sort of delight in the tale he's telling, uh, as opposed to just cynicism and distaste. It's just not as fun. It's like nobody, nobody wants to spend a lot of time listening to complaints. And even though Livy definitely will have some problems, this is not a complaint fest. And that's, uh, that's refreshing in our day and age that's saturated with complaining. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, he's got some complaints, mostly about the present, less so about the past. But what he gives us, even in his account of the past, is sometimes pretty surprising, especially for a modern reader, and not surprising in the way of, oh, it's so archaic. But, I mean, take the opening. We're talking about book one, chapters three through seven today, which is basically the chapters covering the transition from Aeneas's founding of the Latin people. I mean, the Latin people already existed, but the Trojan Latin people who became the Roman people, the transition from Aeneas to Romulus, Romulus's founding of the city. Because what you realize reading about the founding of the city is that the city is founded over and over and over again. It's like, how many founders are there really? (laughs) We've had one founding, yes. <laughs> but what about second founding? <laughs> third founding? I don't think he knows about third founding. <laughs> but what I was going to say is, at the very beginning of this election, what's kind of surprising is in this kind of interregnum between Aeneas's rule, because remember Aeneas dies, if you listen to the last episode, Aeneas dies and is buried by the river. And his grave is kind of the whole region of Latium. And then his son, Iulus, is quite young and can't reign yet. And so what does Livy say? That the kingdom was secure while waiting for Aeneas' son to take the throne because of the strength of Lavinia's character. She was the regent, Aeneas' wife basically ruled the Latin people while waiting for her son to grow up. 
it's just uh i don't have a big point but it's just you know you expect old writer to just get full bore patriarchy 100 percent of the time in this kind of gross or simple way but livy's full of surprises so that's just that's just one right off the bat and also we finally get creusa her name makes an appearance in chapter three yep. and one thing that is interesting is that virgil considered not calling her creusa instead having her name be eurydice Virgil considered that. Yeah, if if I if what I what I've read is correct, and of course he probably felt his hand forced to keep that particular name, but it gives you a an idea as to what he's doing with the the tragedy of the separation between wow. Aeneas. Yeah, that's really interesting. So a, a little taster for the for the Virgil episodes that, that will come eventually. Yeah, because. She kind of disappears like the mist. Creusa does while Aeneas is fleeing, burning Troy. But he needs to go on to something greater. Can't live with the dead. Right. And so this is a pretty politically fraught topic. I think we mentioned it last episode. Ascanius is Aeneas's son by Creusa. But then he marries Lavinia, the basically princess of Latium. Once he gets to Italy, so wait, is Ascanius fully Trojan? Or maybe Ascanius, a.k.a. Iulus, is actually half Trojan and then half Latin through the new wife, Lavinia. This Maybe the boys are different. This poses problems for the Iulii family, so Julius Caesar. Who are you tracing your, your ancestry through? Livy dances around it. And then concludes, this Ascanius, no matter where born or of what mother, is agreed in any case, he was Aeneas' son. So This is what matters. Whatever the case, he's the son of Aeneas, and he became king. But he left Lavinium, the city that Aeneas founded and named after his wife, to found Alba Longa, a new city. Yeah, and it's interesting. Why does he leave? Why does he leave? It's, he says, since it was already a comparatively flourishing and wealthy city with an excess of people. That would seem like a great motivation to stay, right? It's like, oh, things are going great here. As there's, there's plenty of wealth, there's plenty of people. It's all, you know, business is booming. But this is the, instead, this is the motivation for leaving and founding a new city. And it reminds me a little bit of that episode in Genesis where Lot and Abraham are parting ways and of course there's part of it is the conflict between the the shepherds but why why is there a conflict well because there's too many people too many animals to feed the land cannot support them both really and so they need to spread out yep and there's a, a similar sense here it's like the the task has been accomplished right well i don't mean our livy series to become the Fustel de Coulange series, but Fustel de Coulange is just so good in his book, The Ancient City. One thing that he talks about is the growth of private property, the concept of private property emerging out of religion, because your plot of land is where you bury your fathers and it's immovable. And so the city doesn't have the right to take your land from you or use your land, your land is yours, 
But then at the same time, this notion of private property that grows up, Coulange argues, is not identical to ours because our notion of private property is it's a right pertaining to individuals, but the one that grows up in kind of ancient, ancient Greece and Rome is it's a right of private property that belongs to the family of which the father's the head, but it's the family throughout time. It's property that belongs to your great grandfather, your grandfather, your father, you, your son, your grandson, which means you don't have just kind of a blank check to dispense with your property. You can't just sell it and move on. There are ways to do these things, but it's not like just putting it on the MLS and finding a realtor. <laughs> it's a little, there's religious rights if you're going to separate from your land. I mean, this is a big deal. And it gives added weight to, you know, Aeneas, for example, leaving. He's compelled. What would compel you? Not much besides the total destruction and devastation of your land. So, yeah, that's that's a reason to leave. Um, otherwise, you don't just pick up and leave. Or God tells you to leave, right? Like, like with Abraham. Right, right. <laughs> and you can see stuff like this, you know, in Plato's Laws, where there's pretty exact specifications for how much land each family gets. You can't just pass the, the land around. You, you see it in the Mosaic Law, when the promised land is parceled out to the tribes, and then jubilee years are instituted in order to return the land to the family if over a few decades, you know, someone falls on hard times, has to sell some of their land. Well, that's really only going to be temporary because that land really belongs to the family and the tribe in perpetuity. And so there's ways to kind of roll the clock back on any transactions related to land. And so, yeah, if you have too many people, <laughs> you can't just you can't just get creative with what you do with the land. It's pretty static. And so, yeah, you do have to send people out. And this is, this is why colonies are so important, because you have to do something with an excess population. Yeah, and, and it also seems like there is a sense of mission accomplished, right? Like this city, a particular quest has been completed, and it's time, to, it's time for the next great deed. It's time for the next adventure. Mm-hmm. Livy is not explicit about this. This is kind of what I what I imagined, but I think that that, that might be a, another element to what's going on. It's like there's this is not a city that I that I really got going. So I want to do my own. I want to do my own thing. Yeah, if you want to be a great founder, you you need your own city. And in we get we get a premonition of the Latin proverb "Civis pacem." If you want peace, prepare for war. You get that principle laid out here when Livy is talking about, you know, you have Lavinia ruling. So you've got a woman ruling. Oh, my goodness. He's a boy. He's not even ready to be king. It's a new people. And yet, Pax Ita Convenrat. Peace had been agreed. And he kind of lays out the borders of the river. Why? Because these people were so strong. If you want peace in the land, you need to have a strong city. Uh, you know, they'd really given the Etruscans a thorough beating. 
and then you can have peace. <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, being strong and being ready for war, I would imagine involves more than, you know, having enough soldiers to ward off the Etruscans. I think it there's also a interior stability required for that. Because this seems like a great scenario for somebody else to come in and say, you know, do we really want to be ruled by Lavinia for X amount of years? Mm, I think it's my this is my time to shine. <laughs> this is right. my day. Any sort of like instability, anyone that's hungry for power, this is a this is this seems like this could be a great setup, but that doesn't happen. So there's there's this sort of internal stability and strength that also is apparent here. Absolutely. So then you see, with that in mind, why it was so far-sighted of Aeneas in the previous chapters to basically erase their own Trojan identity and all be called Latins. Because the Latin king dies, and then Aeneas is the one ruler, and the Trojans are behind him, but are the Latins behind him? I don't know. Okay, we're all Latins now, and then they get on board for the war against the Etruscans. So that was important for the war, but then Aeneas dies, and so mm-hmm. you've got the strong, charismatic founder gone. What's really holding the city together? If if you hadn't basically erased Trojan identity in favor of a total Latin identity, it certainly would not have achieved that internal stability in this kind of interregnum. Yeah, and I think that either Libby or reality <laughs> perceives the the need for two things being one right this is why the trojan identity needs to be erased because they need to be one people yep but then there is also a need for distinction within the one people and i think this is what we're going to see as part of the issue with romulus and remus there's no distinction in a sense and that leads to some very serious problems but we will get to that yeah, uh, that's that's really interesting. Well, you mentioned, you know, this hypothetical of somebody thinking, seeing a ripe opportunity and thinking this is my time to shine. Reading these chapters, the kind of title in my head for these chapters was how to stage a coup, because you get two coups over the course of these four chapters. And so the first is Numitor and Amulius. So after after the story of Ascanius taking power, then you get a very kind of Old Testament style genealogy. This was the son of this guy, this is the son of this guy, with fun little asides, like he died by getting hit by a lightning bolt. And then you come to two brothers, Numator the elder and Amulius the younger. Now, just, uh, just please, you have to indulge me here. So if you've never read... Uh, this story, either from Livy or anyone else. Just a quick thought experiment. Well, who is the bad guy? So we have two brothers, and inevitably one of them is is the bad guy, right? So we have Numitor and Amulius. Which one do you think is the bad guy? So you know, if and I think that if if you just listen to the names, you would think what? Well, I would think it's Numitor. This is something that often confuses me. Numitor. Huh. Numitor sounds like, yeah, he's going to be the villainous one. And he's also the firstborn. And so it's, uh, it just, so just keep in mind, if you have the same intuition, 
It's not how it's gonna go. <laughs> All right, that's my that's my <laughs> my indulgent moment. <laughs> not sure I have the same intuitions about the sounds of the names. Numitor to me sounds like a character from Lord of the Rings. Numitor. Um, it's such a strong name i kind of think the opposite amulius amulius feels kind of the sound of it feels kind of like uh slimy to me but maybe that's just because i know the story yeah could be could be we will have to let the listeners decide this quarrel in any case they have quite a quarrel and there's an interesting line here that i want to i want to pause on so Numitor is the elder, yet violence proved more potent than a father's wishes or respect for seniority, because the father bequeathed the kingdom to Numitor. And this is a really interesting line, and I think it connects to this idea of kind of peace through strength that we're seeing develop in Livy. That, yeah, what what a dead father said or the kind of customs of the land that the elder gets the kingdom. Those are nice, but those are just words. And if you have a sword, you can do whatever you want. I, uh, I, th- I, I wonder how this line would have been taken by Levy's readers. So thinking back to our discussion of piety, especially you know back in the T.S. Eliot episode, you know, piety is this, particular posture towards your parents, towards the gods, towards the cosmos. It's a whole way of being. It's a, it's a really all-embracing sort of concept. And this kind of strikes one as like, oh man, this guy is not pious. He did not listen to his father, but instead resorted to violence against his own brother. And so it seems kind of intense in that context. This is, this is, oh, this is really not stuff that you want to mess with. And if you tighten it a little bit, you know, we, we also discussed the connection between piety towards parents and what that means for piety towards God or the gods. And so he's being impious towards his father and by extension, the gods. And so it's like, oh my goodness. This is not good. <laughs> yep. I mean, I was just reading the translation I have here in the lobe, but I think the point you're making comes out more in the Latin because my translations was to say the wishes of his father or something. But Latin says voluntas patris, the will of his father. It's a little stronger, a wish, that's kind of wishy-washy, but he contravened the will of what his father kind of enacted in speech and deed and then what i had translated as respect for seniority verecundia aitatis and verecundia is almost like shame right uh-huh. respect is close i think i don't know how would you how would you translate verecundia yeah so i would want to say but it comes from let me just take a quick look at Forchellini, but I want to say something like, uh, haha, this is what I want to say. So, verecundia es pudor, modestia, ingenuitas. And I think here it's more like 
And here's another gloss. This is what this is what I like better. Verecundias de decusest. Reverence is probably what I'd be inclined to translate it in this context. Right. And so when it's reverence for seniority, reverence for elderness, the elderness of your older brother, I mean, then we're talking about the will of the gods, because who made you the younger brother? Nature, i.e. the gods. No one willed that Numitor would be older and Amulius would be younger. This is no no human did. This is the work of higher beings. And so if you don't have reverence for the will of your father and the will of nature, yeah, that is impiety. And so Amulius is kind of impiety incarnate. Mm-hmm. And you see that shortly after. So he, how does he take the kingdom from his elder brother? He drives his brother out of the city. He kills Numitor's son and his brother's daughter. He makes a vestal virgin. And so this is, I think, a pretty brilliant move. Cynical, but brilliant is he's, he does it under pretense of honoring her. The vestal virgin this is like a, a sacred kind of priestess office. And so it's, oh, we're going to take care of you. And we're going to raise you to the kind of highest place you could be as a woman in our city. But of course, a vestal virgin, if she breaks her vow of virginity, I think they're buried alive in punishment. So it's very important that she remain a virgin. And if she remains a virgin, it means she will not have a son, importantly, which means there's no, there won't be any competitor for Amulius from the line of his elder brother. So he seems, you know, very uh, magnanimous. I'm sure he invented some pretext for driving out Numitor and so Oh, Numitor's terrible. He's terrible. He did all these terrible things, but look at the economy. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm not going to. He's so bad, but I'm not going to kill his daughter. That would be too far. I'm actually going to honor her. She was innocent, but it so happens we're going to make sure she never has a son who could challenge me. Also, one thing that is interesting here is he does not kill Numitor. He does not kill his brother, which seems like that would be the thing to do. He instead kills his sons and you know drives drives his brother away. But we don't get get much information. But it could be like, you know, what's the difference between Numitor and his sons? Well, Numitor can probably defend himself, so Amulius doesn't want a pitched battle. But ostensibly, his sons are going to be pretty young, easily killed. With something so ancient, who can truly tell? <laughs> As Livy might say, whatever the case, we know that Numitor was driven out and Amulius was king. And he might be crafty and on top for the moment, but such an impious man cannot, in the end, contravene the will of the gods because the Vestal Virgin, daughter of Numitor, gives birth not just to one son, but to two. Livy gives us, as he's wont, gives us two accounts of how this might have happened. The, what you might say, the demythologized version and the mythologized version. She was either ravished or maybe it was the god Mars, who's the father of these 
doubtful offspring, as Livy says. In any case, she was killed. You can't have children if you're a Vestal Virgin. But again, Amulius seems to have some sort of scruples or something, because he doesn't just put the twin boys to the sword. He orders them to be committed to the river, to be thrown in the Tiber. And so if you haven't figured it out, this is Romulus and Remus, the sons of Mars and a Vestal Virgin, or whoever the father is. But as chance would have it, the Tiber was that they were ordered to be thrown into was overflowing its banks. And so the servants who were told to put the brothers in the river couldn't get down to where the river was flowing rapidly. So they put them in a basket, which ended up not getting pulled into a main current, but just kind of getting caught in an eddy. And then you probably know the story. A wolf comes down from the mountains and the wolf is thirsty. And I, th- I think this is, this is interesting. And Jonathan, you've, we've talked about this before, but it's a picture of real danger reading the narrative. It's like, okay, these, these two boys, the sons of, the sons of Mars have been uh, exposed to the depredations of the, of the false king. They're put into the river, already dangerous, but it seems like luck is on their side because the river hasn't pulled them away. But now you get a thirsty wolf. When you think of a wolf, you think of a hungry wolf. I mean, even, even in like kind of idiomatically, like wolfish, ravenous, like if a, a wolf wanders down looking for something, it's looking for food. And yet this wolf isn't ravenous. This wolf is thirsty. And so it comes down to the river to drink and it finds the crying boys. And rather than eating them, nurses them. Yeah, this is such an interesting story because you read it and you start thinking, have I heard this story before? The king wants to dispose of the male children in the river and the servants are kind of hesitant to do this. The way that Livy puts it, at least in in the translation that I have, he says of the servants, making a pretense of discharging the king's orders. They expose the children on the edge of the flood water where the Ruminalis fig tree now stands. So they want to appear to be obeying the king, but they know that they, they're kind of bending the rules a little bit. And then, so then you have these two boys in a basket. You have the male kids in a basket in the water, and then the she-wolf comes and For me, it's really hard not to think of the Moses narrative. And I think that we've seen, maybe we've seen too many cartoon adaptations and it feels kind of sanitized, this moment where where you see the Pharaoh's daughter, for instance, approaching baby Moses. It's like this, this, this cute, tender moment. But I think that in the narrative, what do we know of Pharaoh's daughter? The main thing that we know is that she is Pharaoh's daughter. (laughs) And what what does Pharaoh want? To kill all the boys, all of them. And so I think we should be a little bit scared when we see her. It's like, oh no, this is this is a problem. This is not going to go well. And instead, she takes care of him, just like the just like the she wolf. We see a, a, there's a twist. So just and there's other other interesting parallels there, but it's something really interesting and fun to notice. 
Yeah, well, and you mentioned the servants who are kind of supposed to be discharging their duty, but don't do a very good job of it. And I imagine, because obviously in Exodus, it's Moses' mother who puts him in the river. But you're, I think you're drawing a parallel between the midwives who are supposed to kill kill the kill the baby boys when they're born, and um, the servants who put Ronius and Remus in the river. Because the midwives, they're supposed to kill the boys, but they're like, oh, those Hebrew women are so vigorous. They give birth before we get there. We can't kill the kid coming out. All of them, every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, well, that's uh, statistically a very interesting thing, isn't it? Which is funny because it kind of goes along with Pharaoh's whole fear, which these Hebrews are, I keep giving them more work and they just keep getting more numerous. These people are too strong. I'm getting very nervous. And the midwives are kind of playing that up. Like, yeah, these, these people are tough. (laughs) In any case, the Royal shepherd finds the boys, raises them. And I just want to jump forward to, they become shepherds, uh, but they kind of, Start a shepherd gang, Romulus and Remus. <laughs> uh, they're kind of like Robin Hood. There's a bunch of robbers in the hills. And so you think of a shepherd having, like King David, having to defend the flock against wild animals. Well, you also have to defend them against thieves, which is what Romulus and Remus do. Uh, they would chase down the robbers laden with spoils and attack them and then steal from the thieves and divide it up among the shepherds. So it's kind of like a a gang against gangs, an anti-gang gang. And so they have a little, they have a little crew. They go around robbing robbers, which is how they meet none other than Numitor because some of the robbers get sick of this. And so they spring a trap capture Remus, haul him before the local judge. And so I guess Numitor has kind of set up his own base of operations. He's not the king of Alba Longa anymore, but he's got some authority in the country. And he he's suspicious because he thinks, yeah, this this character does not seem like a peasant. He's got too noble of a bearing. Right. And reading this this episode, I have to think, man, the gall of these thieves. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what are you, what's going on? Like they go to the highest authority that they can appeal to. I would think that if you're a thief and a bandit like this, you want to stay away from that sort of situation. You want to stay away from the rightful authorities, but no, they have no no problem just going to Numitor and handing over, you know, the 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 thief. <laughs> like, wow, this this is the unbelievable uh, hypocrisy and the you know other elements of this. Kind of makes me think of that. Makes me think of that quote from Princess Bride: "You're trying to take from me what I have rightfully stolen." <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of The Wire and the character Omar, who's this like feared, feared criminal in Baltimore. But what he does is he goes around robbing drug dealers. So all the drug dealers are scared of Omar. 
He's a he's a fun character, but that's that's kind of what Romulus and Remus are like the Omar of Latum. And it's worth noticing that in order to haul off Romulus and Remus and bring them before Numitor, the thieves they don't just go for them because the thieves aren't strong enough because these guys have a gang. They have to use Lupercalia, this festival when young men run around naked in celebration of Pan. And Romulus fights them off, but Remus gets taken. And so it's only Remus who uh, gets dragged before Numitor. And when Numitor finds out he has a he has a twin, you get this kind of Joseph scene. Oh, you know, all these terrible things happened, uh, but maybe it's the will of the fates to make it all work together for good. And so then, just like the robber, the bandits used a ploy to grab Remus. So Romulus and Remus use a ploy in order to put Numitor back on the throne and take down Amulius. And there's a great line. So they're planning their their counter coup, basically. And it says, Romulus did not assemble his company of youths, for he was not equal to open violence, but commanded his shepherds to come to the palace at an appointed time, some by one way, some by another, and so made his attack upon the king. And it's just a great image, I think, of... Romulus and Remus scheming with Numitor. Okay, how are we going to take down Amulius? And they're like, well, we've got a gang, but we're not strong enough to just fight it out in the streets. So we'll stay dressed up as shepherds. You know, you come through the city gates, you know, leading a flock maybe because you're going to sell them in the market. And we'll come in a different gate and some of us will already be here. And so it's really these like wolves in sheep's clothing who seem just like normal civilians, and then all at once, uh, the game is on. And Numitor is part of this whole plot. He raises the alarm when the shepherd gang comes in, kills Amulius, and then just because you kill the king does not mean your coup has come off. And so you see this much later in Roman history, when the senators kill Julius Caesar, and they don't really seem to have a plan besides killing Julius Caesar. Because they all are just so fixated on him and hate him so much. They're like, all our problems will go away once we kill this guy. And so they do it. And then they rush through the streets. And they're like, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> they don't have any plan for what happens next. And so Numitor, Romulus, and Remus don't make this mistake. Because they say, look, we can kill the king. But there's still a bunch of people loyal to Amulius. And so Numitor says, oh, we're being attacked. And sends everybody to the other side of the city. So that... Romulus, Remus, and Numitor can kind of lock down the palace and make it really feel like a fait accompli. Like, the fight's over. There's no more fighting to be done. We've totally won already. The whole garrison is all spread out all over the place. There's no central point where they can gather to stage a counterattack. The game's up. And then once that happens and it looks over, then Numitor goes out on the streets and says, the tyrant is dead. I did it. Uh, I'm, re- I'm I've come back to my rightful throne, and so you just get a kind of masterful sequence of how to stage a coup. That's why I'm thinking of these chapters in this way because Livy gets down in the details of of how it's all pulled off. And one more point, kind of tactical point, is they don't neglect the propaganda either. How to pull off the propaganda victory. Oh, he killed Amulius. Like, is is I thought Numitor was a bad guy. Is it good? Is it bad? And they don't leave anything to chance. 
So after the shepherds kill Amulius, they filter back into the general population of the city. And when Numitor goes out to announce the coup having happened, then the shepherds are just, once again, normal civilians, and they're hailing the new king, not as necessarily his bodyguard or his army, but they're just, quote unquote, normal civilians saying, woohoo, yeah, Numitor, you're the rightful king. Um, so then everyone will kind of follow their example, be like, oh, yeah, I guess this is a good thing. Is this a good thing? All these people are cheering. It must be a good thing. So they've pulled off the tactical victory and the propaganda victory. This episode, I think, is a, it's a good illustration of where power comes from, ultimately. Right? So we often think of uh, that phrase that you know, the, the authority or the power of governors comes from the consent of the governed as, as being a statement of how things ought to be. This is how it should be. Yeah, like a moral, a moral statement. Like, yeah, anybody who doesn't, who isn't elected is a tyrant in a fair democratic election. Yes, right. And for here, we don't have a fair democratic election. We don't have no. an election of any kind. <laughs> right. And certainly not anything resembling democracy. Yet there's this moment where Amulius does not have any real power. Right, he just has the the power that he had as a lower, you know, a lower magistrate. Oh, you mean Numitor? Yeah. Oh man, you see, this is so deeply ingrained in my mind. I wonder why. That's interesting. And I know, like, I'm aware that this is that I make this mistake, and it's still like, oh my goodness. So there you go. There you go. Yeah, Numitor. He's not. He doesn't have. He's not the king, and he does not have this power. But then the people accept him, right? And, uh, and this is part of the plan. And now all of a sudden, he has all of this power. He has the power of a king. Right. And so power comes from the consent of the governed. We, in our kind of modern liberal understanding of that phrase, we think of consent as active consent. I voted for so-and-so, and therefore he has the right to rule. Here, it's a kind of passive consent. Like, oh, he's the king now? And there's this, you can feel, reading Livy, there's this moment where it all hangs in the balance. He goes out into the streets. He's very vulnerable. What are the people going to do? Okay, he's the king. Because they could rise and revolt. I mean, they could kill him. No problem. And the image that flashed in my mind of the, the kind of king going out into the streets to solicit the at least passive consent of the people brings to mind Coriolanus, who is not a king, of course, but being elected consul. And he has to go out and show his war wounds to the Roman people. And he, he thinks this task is below him, which is why they end up exiling him from the city. So he can't pull off what Numitor can. Numitor knows, knows about power. Coriolanus really doesn't. Coriolanus thinks he can just kill people. And once he's killed enough people, he gets to rule. So no. There's probably a lot of killing involved, but at the end of the day, you need to do more than that. You need to solicit the consent of the people. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's really interesting how this translation renders what has just happened. He says, from the entire crowd, there arose a unanimous shout of assent, thus ratifying the king's name and his power. 
And it's interesting to see what Libby does in Latin. Instead of, it doesn't use the word ratify. It talks about efficite. He used the word efficite. It says, Secuta ex omni multitudine consentiens, vox ratum nomen imperiumque regi efficit. So the name and the power was made for the king. And it's a, it's a little bit stronger, I think, than, than uh, ratify. Ratify just kind of sounds like, yeah, this decision was made. Okay, check the box. <laughs> it's like, no, this is something that has been given to him, that has been created by the people. Yeah, and this kind of moment of anarchy, of like calm anarchy. Amulius is dead. Numitor says he's the king. There's troops everywhere. And then this band of shepherds is mixed in the crowds, hailing him as king. And the people, what do they do? They make him king by shouting unanimously. Yeah, and this, this is an interesting contrast between what happens, what, what can happen when there's a mob. You know, you think of what's that day where there's discounts and people kill each other? <laughs> Black Friday. Right. Yes, yes, that's right. Black Friday, right? You think of Black Friday and like there's tons, there's crowds, people lined up and it's chaos and people get trampled. There's disorder. This is the sort of thing that, that can, can happen, right? There's all of these people, massive change. But instead, instead you have a movement from uncertainty to order. And it seems like this is, these are two two paths that can be taken when you have large groups of people that can dissolve into total chaos or there can be a unifying element that creates order. What is the unifying element? I think it's always blood. Well, in this case, the uh, unifying element, I think is the, I mean, the, you know, you can trace the sequence of events, but what brings them together publicly is the kingship. Right, right. But it's, what does Numitor announce to them? The tyrant is dead. I killed him. And so I think Pontius Pilate knew his Roman history, I assume. And so he had a mob and the leaders of the mob saying, this guy wants to be king. We don't have any king but Caesar. What about you, Pontius Pilate? Do you have another king? Or are you loyal to Caesar like us? And so he hands Jesus over to be crucified because this is what the mob is shouting. And yet, you know, four or five days ago, that mob was in the streets as this rural character from Galilee was riding in, looking looking a lot like King David on a donkey with the people shouting and hailing him, just like Numitor was hailed in the streets. And so the mob switches back and forth, even if it's from one kind of point of order to another point of order. That switching back and forth is itself anarchic. You never know what's, what it's what the mob's going to do. And if you can unite the mob around something, you can direct it. If you know how to do that, you have a lot of power. And the way to do it is blood, I think. And this seems to be one of the lessons of Livy is every founding moment is accompanied by blood. So Aeneas binding the Trojans and Latins together by killing Etruscans. Here we get Numitor getting his kingship ratified by killing Amelius. Then 
you know, we've been hanging out in archaic, ar- archaic founding moments of Roman Empire, and we think we're going to get some forward momentum. And then Livy's like, oh, hold up, let's, <laughs> let's back up, because we, we have to go back to the story of Hercules and why we had some Greek, why we had Greek religion in Rome is because of this whole Hercules cult that was started. And how is that started? Well, it's when Hercules killed this guy who wanted to steal his cows. Um, and everyone, they caught Hercules red-handed. He killed this guy. We've got a murder. We've got a murder. But Evander says, oh, no, my, my mother, the prophetess, foretold you're coming. You're actually going to be numbered with one of the gods. And so they built an altar. Hey, there's a pool of blood. Hercules is dripping with blood. And then they build an altar and sacrifice an animal and even more blood. Not to mention the story of Romulus and Remus themselves. After they help Numitor take back the throne, they are seized by a desire to go back to the hill country where they were raised. They don't want to hang out with Numitor. They want to found their own city, which they have an argument about. You know, they're twins. So unlike Numitor and Amulius, where it's clear Numitor should rule because he's the elder, it's not clear whether Romulus or Remus should live because nobody's around who could tell you which one came out first. Yes, I think this is a really important parallel for this story is this parallel between Amulius and Numitor because you have you have a number of things. You have what you just mentioned, age. This is the elder brother. And there's a particular way in which things ought to go. But you also have the explicit wish and decree of their father. Custom kind of ratifying nature. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you have custom. And you have city. You have a law. Right. Right. And I think this is something that is hard to notice or easy to neglect is Romulus and Remus find themselves in a kind of pre-civilized, pre-culture state. Like, there's a number of things that are missing. They don't have a father, right? I mean, Mars isn't being a good parent. He's not... (laughs) He's not... Classic absent father. Yeah. Hanging out on Olympus. He's not... um, He's not directing them. So they, they can't, they're not following the will of, of their father because they don't, it's not given to them. And there's not a particular custom that makes sense for them to follow because they're the founders. They're starting, they're starting their own cities from yeah. the beginning. And then there's no clear delineation based on nature. As you were mentioning, they're twins and you can't, they can't discern. And so here, that we see that there was that there's this really important need for distinction and for some sort of hierarchy in order to resolve this, uh, and they don't have it, and so they and they both feel a important claim to power. This is a really good point, and yeah, this is why I was emphasizing the banditry. Even before this, they were men beyond the law, because okay, it's obviously bad to be a bandit robbing people when you, when you're doing that you're a law unto yourself but you're also kind of you have an obvious relationship to the law which is that you're violating it and need to be brought to justice but if you're robbing people of their ill-gotten gains 
and you're not, you know, deputized by the magistrate to exact justice on criminals, but you're just kind of like a criminal against criminals. What is your relationship to the law? Like, no one, no one's going to say, oh, well, you, you are very, very bad. You're, you're a total menace. It's like, well, you're just kind of vigilante. I mean, this is vigilantism is you are enriching yourself. You're kind of taking the law into your own hands. This is also a, a, something to notice is what is the state of civilization that they're coming from, right? They're coming out of a place where the rule of law has degenerated. Right. And it start and it starts with Amulius. Yep. Because he he's the main leader and he has disrespected the law. Right. Um, and and all sorts of laws he has broken. And this has led to a state of affairs where you can be a thief and a bandit, then there's a way in which the ruling authorities have made their peace with this, right? Because this is this is happening all the time. But there's it's clear that there's certain boundaries that they are keeping as like okay we we will turn our we will not do anything just don't kill anyone just fine you can do your your theft here and there just maybe tone it down be nice to the people you know because well, they could have just killed Remus when they had him right but they're like no 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 we have standards here we do <laughs> things properly here <laughs> like, no, we're not so- murderers. Certain legal and moral realities have just been messed up, and that's where they're coming from. <laughs> so, and so they they don't have the best paradigm to build from. And so they try and lay one down. And so talking about this lack of differentiation, it gets compounded. It seems by the gods themselves to say, "Okay, who's going to rule the city we're founding?" Uh, we don't know. How about we do an augury? See what the gods tell us. Remus gets six, is it vultures, I think, mm-hmm. that fly overhead. And it's like, oh, he got the birds first. But then shortly afterwards, Romulus gets 12 vultures. And so Remus is like, I get to rule because the birds came first for me. Or Remus says, I get, I get to rule first because the birds came first for me. Romulus says, no, I get to rule because I got more birds. <laughs> Right. (laughs) If you didn't get the if you didn't get the picture yet that, yeah, there is this lack of differentiation. There's no hierarchy that can tell you how to set up the city. You're going to have a problem. And so this is kind of the the, uh, icing on the cake. Yeah. And it's not and it's it's not like they could have seen, oh, hey, the Spartans have two kings. Let's have two kings. (laughs) They don't have the Spartans as models. What do they have as models? Their father and their uncle. And not and in some ways Julius. not the best uh, role <laughs> yeah. model situation. And like, well, I guess one of us is, is going to go in one way or another. This is how we resolve our family disputes. And it's very fraught because it's not just Romulus and Remus, of course. There's a whole host of dudes, violent guys, who've been helping them rob bandits for the past few years and who just staged a coup. And so you can imagine this augury happening and Ramius and Remus kind of looking behind their shoulders and there's all these tough guys with, <laughs> with weapons. It's like, where are they going to go? Who are they going to follow? Because not only do Ramius and Remus not have a good example, those guys don't have a good example of 
how to settle questions of rulership. It's just, it's been kind of a bunch of shepherds living in the hills, robbing people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting is that there is this element of, they don't have good examples. They don't have, they've lived in a deteriorated civilization. On the other hand, I also think that there's an element of power has just gotten to their head because they have been leading this band of, you know, this gang of anti-gangsters <laughs> together. That's the sense that you get. They've been equal rulers, in a sense, of this gang. Yep, definitely. And so based on their own experience, they can continue ruling in that way right it's like that seems like seems like that that could work out let's just keep doing what we've been doing it's got it's, it's worked so far but now there's a extra big cookie that seems like only one of them can have uh, and let's just say that their imagination has been squashed by their desire for power that that seems to be definitely part of part of what's tragic here is that the resolution in a sense is just, would, would be to just keep the status quo that seems like a possibility that is not taken but the gang isn't going to have that because what livy says is it seems like within the gang that's been kind of co-led by romulus and remus certain members have allegiances to one or the other probably not formal ones but like Oh, Romulus is my homie, or Remus is my homie, because Romulus and Remus start arguing about who gets to rule based on the augury, and then a melee breaks out, Remus is killed, and then, once again, blood has founded the city. And again, Livy gives you the demythologized first and mythologized version, so it's either this brawl breaks out and Remus gets stuck with a knife, or the commoner story, and there's no, like, you know gods or magic in this one but you can see why it's kind of mythologized is that romulus starts building the walls and then remus jumps over the wall and laughs at him and then romulus kills him in anger because the wall is kind of symbolic of the differentiation you're talking about is the wilderness is on this side the city is on this side and that you need you need an in and an out in order to have a city, in order to have a civilization. Here's where we are. Here's who we are. Here's where we're not. Here's who we are not. And if Remus is going to laugh at that, Remus then isn't up to the task of differentiation that founding requires. Yeah, I, yeah. it's it's very easy to, to just simply see Romulus as having a bad temper, right? <laughs> like you had a bad day right. or... You just don't like your brother anymore. And you can easily imagine Romulus having all sorts of character flaws and problems. But the the reality of what Remus is doing is, is pretty serious. This isn't like a little joke, a little innocent joke. This is he's still contesting for power. And he's still challenging the power of of Romulus. And at this point, by extension, the new city. And so he's he's put himself in a situ- in a situation where he's symbolically the enemy of the state, <laughs> right? That's that's how he's yep. behaving. He's like, look, 
if I was if I was your enemy, look how easily I can climb your walls. And I mock your power. I mock your defenses. And I think that by doing this, he's also suggesting I mean, this is this might be a little of interpret fun interpretation on my side, but I think he's also suggesting I can do better. Because I'm look, I'm climbing these walls. I can do better or something similar, which might be I would prefer to remain a bandit, a shepherd bandit, coming in and out of the city as I please, not having a settled abode, because shepherd just wanders, right? And yeah, your your city is just kind of a second order good. It's there for convenience if I want to come to the market or whatever. But I'll come in and out. I'll jump over the walls. Um, we don't need to commit to this one place and make this our city. So it's a kind of a, you can see it allegorically as this battle between kind of nomadic versus settled life. And Romulus says, strikes him down and says, and this is what happens to anyone who jumps over my walls. Yeah, what's definitely happening is, is the mockery of what this represents. And this represents the defense of a particular people and a particular way of living. Um, and so he does not make it. <laughs> nope. Whereupon Romulus becomes the undisputed king. And Livy says he sacrifices according to all the Alban ways, except he does a Greek sacrifice to Hercules. And that's where we get this flashback to Hercules killing a thief, a cattle rustler. And Evander kind of saves him from a murderous crowd, saves Hercules from the crowd. He says, hey, you're a murderer. And says, oh, no, you're a god. And he said, my mother foretold that you'd become a god and that an altar should be dedicated to you here, which the nation one day to be the most powerful on earth. No republic was ever greater. This nation will call the altar the greatest altar, and we should serve it according to your cult, your right. And so then they sacrificed to Hercules, who, interestingly, he's being sacrificed to there while a man, not yet deified, and still alive in their presence. It's interesting. Preemptive, you know, just putting those sacrifices in the bank account. Yeah. And I, with this story, I think maybe we, it, it'd be easy to be tempted to see it as the, you know, often people think of Victor Hugo's digressions into the sewer system are kind of absurd. I've never read it, so I don't know if, if they're absurd. And this can seem kind of out of place. It's like, what, why do we have this story here? The first time reading through it, I got confused. I'm like, Wait, did Evander become king after Romulus? Uh, oh no, <laughs> we're going backwards. Mm -hmm. And one, at least I am tempted to wonder whether we are supposed to read the Romulus and Remus story in light of this Hercules narrative. And this would really, I think, ramp up your interpretation, Ryan, because the Geryon is definitely like a really disordered bandit shepherd. Well, that's Kakus. Right. This is Geryon. Hercules comes to the area to fight Geryon, and then Gary he kills Geryon, and then Hercules falls asleep, and then Kakus steals his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Kakus, the 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 guy that you know takes the cattle backwards into the cave. Right. 
Yes. So you have this this crafty thief. Right. And I mean, Hercules is a shepherd or not a shepherd. He's a cowherd here. Like we're once again back to kind of pastoral nomadic life. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, I wanted to spend a little time with Nick, our favorite Renaissance, early modern Italian, Nick Machiavelli in chapter one here. He's talking about the very beginnings of Rome and he has a similar outlook to Livy about Rome. So much virtue was maintained for many centuries in that city. And th this is kind of the whole raison d'etre for his discourses on, on Livy is, this place is really exceptional for maintaining such a high level of virtue for so long. How do they do it? How can we recreate that in Italy? And something he says right there at the very beginning is interesting, in particular for this series we're doing. I'll just read you really briefly. So, so much virtue is maintained for many centuries in that city and that afterward, the empire that the republic attained arose there. Since this is almost uh, kind of incomprehensible at first, the empire that the republic attained. When we think of empires and republics in general, and particularly with Rome, particularly with Rome, we think of them in opposition, that you had kind of the broad schematic of Roman history, you have this kind of mythological prehistory, which is where we've been hanging out in these first two episodes. Then you get the Tarquins, so you get the Roman monarchy. Then you get the expulsion of the Tarquins and the setup of the Roman Republic. And then after a long time, the Republic falls into disarray. And finally, the Republic falls. And you can mark that either with Julius Caesar or probably Caesar Augustus vanquishing all his enemies and setting up the Roman Empire. And that's the fall of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire. But that's not how Machiavelli thinks about it. And it's not really how the Renaissance humanists thought about it either, in general. Machiavelli is definitely distinct from the rest of the humanists in a lot of ways, but I think he's with them here in at least one way, which is the Republic. Republic doesn't mean democracy and empire doesn't mean monarchy. The empire that the Republic attained was this rule over a great many other countries and lands and peoples. So Rome is the city and Rome grows up and has their res publica, their public thing. And that public thing that they run together, all these farmer soldiers who participate in public life, they conquer other lands and incorporate them into their empire. And so in that sense, the Republic, the Roman Republic, which goes out and conquers the Mediterranean, is an empire, but it's also a republic. And so any kind of revolution that happens with the Iulii family is, it's not really the beginning of the empire, it's maybe the, the end of the republic in a certain sense, but it's just a continuation of the empire with a, a slightly different setup. So I thought that's worth pointing out, just in Machiavelli's usage. Old Nick. Old Nick. Somebody once told me that Old Nick, that nickname for the devil, comes from Niccolo Machiavelli. Does it really? I don't know, and I kind of doubt it, but I, it's, a, it's a fun thought. <laughs> that is fun. And, and afterward, the empire that the Republic attained arose there. I wonder about this. We've mentioned how 
certain terms like republic can really have all sorts of, of meanings, not necessarily a republican form of, of government. Lowercase r, republican. Right. And imperium in Latin, for instance, can also just mean power or power over a certain region. Right. And of course, you know, Machiavelli is very much steeped in this in this ancient Roman reading. That's another of these terms, right, where empire itself can mean not simply a... We think of empire, we think of a political power that's constantly expanding. And has, like, multiple nations or peoples under its authority. Mm-hmm. Where that's not necessarily what's important about imperium, the constant expan- expansion and taking hold of more territory, but it's more the power itself that it holds over whatever region it's it, it controls. Interestingly, I think you kind of do see this in English still. When you talk about like a media mogul's empire, I suppose there, there's a shade of meaning there where it's like it's growing and it's more, but it's also just the fact that he controls it. It's my little empire, the thing I have power over. Right, yeah. And those two you don't necessarily get the sense of like, you know, you're taking over other stuff, other people's little kingdoms, right? <laughs> right. Yep, exactly. So it's just kind of rule itself is empire. Well, Machiavelli definitely sees in Rome kind of the source of its virtue, sees it in similar lights as Livy, because just as Livy is very concerned about this kind of honoring of simplicity and frugality. So Machiavelli opens his discourses on Livy by kind of pondering, is it better to set up a city that has kind of rich, rich land or poor land? So he says, he says, because men work either by necessity or by choice, and because there is greater virtue to be seen where choice has less authority, it should be considered whether it is better to choose sterile places for the building of cities, so that men, constrained to be industrious and less seized by idleness, live more united, having less cause for discord because of the poverty of the site. And you, you see arguments like this when you look at kind of theories of the Industrial Revolution and world history. Like, why do certain places become industrial hotspots? Why does the Industrial Revolution happen in England? Why does the Northeast of the United States become the richest part of the country? And a lot of historians would argue, and I don't know that I'm totally convinced one way or another, but it's it's a very interesting thesis. Like, Europe had the Industrial Revolution first, and England in particular, because of the poverty of the land. England what England didn't really export anything anybody wanted except some wool, but even most of the world doesn't need a lot of wool. Like the Mediterranean world's pretty hot. You don't need heavy wool a lot of the time. The English need lots of wool and the British need lots of wool, cold and wet. Um, so they don't really have anything anybody wants. And then they chop down all their trees and they're on an island. So they don't have any fuel left. So they start digging up coal and burning coal. And then they keep digging deeper for more coal and then their holes fill up with water and they have to pump out the water to get the coal and say, what if we invent a machine burning on coal that can pump the water out of our coal mines 
and the steam engine's born. This is kind of the like resource-centered account of the Industrial Revolution. And in a similar way, the Puritans come to the rocky Northeast and there's no gold like in Latin America. There's no silver. You can't plant big tobacco fields or big cotton fields and have a cash crop. You can just kind of barely eke out subsistence. And so what do you do? You build factories and you get really productive with your industry, with what you make, rather than just kind of living off the fat of the land. And you get highly virtuous in the sense of strong and relatively egalitarian and unified and democratic political systems and societies because of the poverty of the land. And this is what Machiavelli is saying. You know, you get these really rich, fertile areas that causes lots of discord because everyone's fighting over the land because it's really valuable to have land. And there's so many good things to be had. But what if you set up a city where there's almost nothing? Then people can't really fight because they all have to band together. If you might potentially die every winter, <laughs> there's no time to have fights because you're all going to die anyways if you don't get it together. Yeah, and uh, in terms of the industrial industrialization stuff, it's hard not to think of necessity being the mother of invention. It's like when you need something, then you find a way to attain it. And the one of the difficulties with conceiving of a state that's always on the brink of some sort of disaster is just how unsustainable that is going to be, right? Because this going back to our discussion of if you want peace, prepare for war. Well, if you're on the brink of starvation all the time, uh, you're not really going to be ready for war. You might be ready to be conquered, and you might be happy to be conquered by, say, the Egyptians who always seem to have food. <laughs> right. right. There's famine in the land, and so they went to Egypt. <laughs> yep. Right, and I think Machiavelli recognizes that purposefully creating a poor city is kind of perverse, even though it yields these good benefits. So his solution is law. Law imposes necessity, even when there's wealth in the land, so that you can, through law and custom, you can get the benefits of poverty, even while not having the disadvantages of poverty. And so he mentions the Spartans. Uh, it's a really harsh law about how you raise children, so they develop into strong warriors. He says the Egyptians did the same thing, had strict laws, so even though they always had food, they weren't just fat and happy all the time. Well, on that note, thank you for joining us for episode number two of our series, No Republic Was Ever Greater. We will be back again soon with new humanists, both of this Livy series and our kind of regular examinations of the humanistic tradition and education and what it all means. Thanks so much. Bye.